Welcome. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In this episode, we have a real live caller asking questions about making model modification and confirmatory factor analysis. We also discuss the pod, rusty knives, breathtaking agnosticism, Applebee's, Patrick's favorite game at the North Carolina State Fair, poking sticks, and Irish pirates. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, welcome, Greg. Hey there, how you doing? What people haven't heard was we just talked for six or eight minutes about what the opening banter should be. And I don't think we actually settled on any opening banter. So I'm going to open the banter talking about opening banter. That would be meta banter. I saw them open for Van Halen in <laughs> 87. Oh, that would be with Sammy Hagar. I'm sorry. Oh, that was No, hey, Van Hagar were the best years of Van Halen. Take it back. I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. I'll make you a deal is you don't insult Van Hagar and I won't insult your Kenny G. Easy there, mister. All right. Do you have anything written on your list of things that we could banter about besides bantering? Van Halen. Okay. <laughs> Check. <laughs> One of the things we could do today is take our very first caller. Ooh, I like it. Do we have the technological infrastructure to do that, Patrick? I will ask my 14-year-old daughter <laughs> to explain how this works. But as a matter of fact, we do. And I think we could turn to that now and talk to our very first caller. Are you ready? I am ready. It looks like we've got our first call in for today. It is test. <laughs> I know. Okay. I, I know. It's weird having a call in when we're actually on the computer, but you know, as a child of the 1970s, it's still a rotary phone for me. Tessa from the University of Maryland. Welcome, Tessa. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the pod. Ooh, the pod. I like that. Dang. <laughs> yeah, I'm bringing a little hipness to your podcast. You're it, welcome. You think there wasn't hipness before? <laughs> wow. All right. Way to lead with, uh, with a dig, but go ahead. <laughs> I like her already. Mm-hmm. What can we do to help you, Tessa? <laughs> All right. So I have, I think, kind of a classic SEM problem. I have a two-factor model, and I'm trying to run a CFA, and I get lots of mod indices. And I have some that are telling me to do cross-loading and some that are telling me to put on residual covariances. And I'm not really sure how to tease that apart And maybe if you were looking at this as a reviewer, would you prefer to see someone theorize there are two factors, but end up with a model that has kind of a spidery uh, cross-loading situation or a model that retains those two factors and has lots of uh, residual covariances? Ooh, that's a good one. Mm. There are all sorts of interesting things going on here. So a couple of just orienting questions and just ballpark numbers, not exact. Um, What's your sample size? Sample size is around 500. Okay. And just ballpark, what is your overall model chi-square with degrees of freedom? About 100 and degrees of freedom around around 50. All right. How many items? Uh, We've got 15 items. Just a basic overview. 
in a multiple indicator confirmatory factor model, so you've got about 15 indicators. I assume they're about evenly divided over the two factors. And I also assume the factors are correlated with one another. Yeah. This is called a restrictive factor analysis. So you're estimating loadings, you're linking the items to the latent variables. And although you're estimating some loadings that define your factor structure, you're fixing others to zero right? So you don't have cross loadings, you don't have correlated residuals. So there are a lot of potential parameters in the model that you're not allowing to be there. And those are reflected in the degrees of freedom, right? So great. And why, why would someone do this type of analysis, Patrick? <laughs> what, 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 is it, what is it used for? So in the term is confirmatory factor analysis is we're testing some kind of a priori structure in the factor model. And so in exploratory factor analysis, we could have the same sample, same item, same number of factors, but all indicators load on all latent variables. And so you're not imposing any restrictions on the model. But in the confirmatory factor model, you're saying these set of items define this latent factor, and these set of items define that latent factor. And then you're testing that with the empirical data to say to what extent does my hypothesized factor structure correspond to the characteristics of the sample data? Yeah, so Tessa, is this, is this toward maybe the development of an instrument or what's the, what's the overarching purpose for this particular analysis? So the over, it is not for the development of an instrument per se. It's really just to look at two psychological constructs and see how they are related in different groups. So it's a, it's a multiple group analysis. Okay. All right. Good. Um, and uh, ostensibly the scale has its pieces of scales that already exist. So what we're doing is a little different, but based on things that should be validated. And one other question to add into Patrick's hopper of questions. Um, what, are the, what are the scales of the measured variables? Um, are they like five-point Likert scales? Are they... Um, oh, oh, no, they are some scores. So okay. they're all around you know, zero to 30. Okay, cool. All right, sorry to interrupt, Patrick. Go ahead. So what we got is you estimate your initial model, and this is very common in, in doing uh, confirmatory factor models like these, is when you impose these kinds of restrictions, so you have a particular indicator and you're saying it only relates to one underlying latent variable and it does not relate to another, or at least it, if it does, it's indirectly through the, the, the correlation among the latent factors. And so your overall chi-square test, and we can save for another podcast, how do you evaluate the fit of SEMs? Because people are still throwing things at each other in the literature as to how do you determine if a model fits well or not. But what you're saying is right now, you've probably got a lot of power. You have 500 subjects, and, and so it's, it, you have a lot of power for your overall test, but it's still not fitting great right? And so just to remind people, a modification index, I always view these as like a rusty knife. You know you shouldn't pick it up. You know you shouldn't flip it and try to catch it by the handle, but you just can't help yourself because it's just so cool and it's so fun. And I get as, it. As rusty knives are. Well, exactly. And I get an <laughs> annual tetanus shot and in, in evidence of that. My annual. Modification indices 
can be really powerful and useful, but they can also be a siren song that pull you onto the rocks of all sorts of problems in, in uh, model testing and uh, especially with replicability. But very briefly, what a modification index is, is it's an estimate of how much your chi-square will go down if you were to add that parameter to the model. And so, you know, let's just say, you know, your, your overall chi-square is about 100. Let's just call it 100 and say you have a modification index of 20 for a cross-loading. What it literally means is if you estimate just that one cross-loading, your chi-square that you're going to get for your overall model is going to be about 80. It's going to drop 20 from 100 to 80. All right, so very cool, very powerful, very insightful, but at the same time, crazy dangerous because it is breathtakingly agnostic to theory. Um, indeed, these are second derivatives of, of, of uh, asymptotic covariance matrices, and they could not care less about what your theory is and whether that's reasonable or not. It's just saying, hey, if you do this, it'll go down this. If you do this, it'll go down this, and it will do that for all 50 of your degrees of freedom, because each of those is a, a restriction you place. So what you're saying is, you're getting several of these modification indices, but they're telling you to do different things. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I'm getting some indications that there should be cross-loadings or residual covariances. All right, Greg, what is your opinion on where to go next? I think it's a little bit messy because on the one hand, I don't believe for a minute, with all due respect, that your model is right um, for a variety of reasons. Your model's wrong. So just take a deep breath and own that. So then the question is, is it only a little wrong and you can live with it and it sounds like the fit is so bad that the answer is no? Is it so bad that you say, well, you know, my, uh, my theory's wrong. So... T time to work at Applebee's or whatever your career change would be right now? Or um, do you make modifications? Do you make some sort of change? And I, I agree with Patrick that the modification indices don't care what your, mod what your model is. They don't care what your theory is. And they are all univariate in the sense that they assume that everything else is frozen in place. And none of those things are really likely to be reasonable. And what you notice whenever you do get pulled onto the rocks by the siren is that if you make, let's say, modification one, and then you rerun the model and you go look at the modification indices, whoa, where the other modification indices go? They're gone or they're different. Um, and then if you go back and you take out modification one and you put in modification two and you go back and you go, whoa, where, where did modification one go? It's not here anymore. Um, and that should be troubling from the start because if modification one was real, it should still be there, right? And so what you're doing is you are alleviating pressure in your model in different ways, and that doesn't mean that you're getting any closer to fit. So this concerns me a lot. That doesn't mean I'm going to throw it all out, but it concerns me. Patrick, did you want to poke it? Wake up, Patrick. Oh, I'm sorry. Applebee's? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's almost time for the salad bar. Um <laughs> So in your case, Tessa, you have, how many modifications are really, are, are taunting you right now? How many are better? There, there are about four that are over 15. 
All right. Those are pretty big. A lot. Yeah. Let me briefly, and we can dedicate an entire future episode to this topic, and I will do my best to try to keep this as short as possible here. It is a kind of a high-level statistical concept, and it deals with asymptotic distributions and regularity conditions. And, and so hang with me if, if you can. Is, um, it's called whack-a-mole. And go to the North Carolina State Fair, you go to the Midway and you play the whack-a-mole game and you stand in front of the the board and there are nine holes and the big buzzer goes off and you have a giant furry hammer and a mole pops its head up and you got to hit it down before it pulls its head down and pops up somewhere else. And really, it's the only state of true sublimeness. I have ever experienced is when you're in the whack-a-mole zone. I have been on the midway of the North Carolina State Fair, and I know which hole the mole is going to come out of before he comes out. It's been the most glorious moment in my entire life. Modification indices are whack-a-moles. And it goes back to Greg's point, you know, you estimate one, you add a parameter, and you go back, and all the others have gone away. Well, you've let the mole out right? And so what you don't know is, do you have one mole that's trying to get out in four different places? Or do you legitimately have four moles that each want to come out of their their own accord? I think where potentially I would go next, I really respect modification indices, but I try to use them very carefully. I want to use them to, as a first step, understand where is the misspecification likely to be, all right? Because that's what it implies, right? Is you have a misspecification somewhere in your model. You've imposed a restriction that the data is calling BS on. And it's saying, I'm going to give you these other restrictions and that's cool, but these four I don't like and I'm going to call you on it. What I would be tempted to do is a first step is estimate each of the four individually and fix it back. So do one and then replace it and two and replace it. And just see, do you have one mole, two mole, four moles? And then when you've oriented to that, then do what we all need to do. And I got to tell you, we need to do it a lot more than we do, which is look at theory, right? Because that's the only what? get out. Jay, I what? know, I know. Oh, Greg woke back up again. Sorry. Tessa, we need to talk a little more quiet. The derivatives need to be mapped on when you look at this parameter, does it make sense for your model, right? Because SEM is a really wild game we play. Because we want to fit a model that fits well, right? That we can write a discussion section about. But we know going in that if we estimate enough parameters, we're always going to get a good fitting model, right? It's sometimes called trivially well-fitting. You just keep throwing parameters at it. And at the extreme, you have what's called a saturated model. You estimate as many parameters as pieces of information you have, and you perfectly reproduce the data. And so it's a funny game we play because we know that if we just throw enough things at the wall, that it's going to fit well, but we're letting data decide things about our model. And we are now in, and this is a whole nother topic for a future podcast as well, of the reproducibility crisis, which kind of drives me insane. If we just throw in additional parameters to make our model fit well, it's very likely that we're capitalizing on the idiosyncratic characteristics of our data and it's not going to reproduce in future studies. So when you said that those four were 15 or above, what, what, was, what was number five? What was number five? Yeah. Oh, um, I only printed things that were 10 and up and these are the huh. four that popped up. Yeah. Okay. So that means that they're at least below 10. So Patrick has 
has raised what I think is a really important idea. That is that theory might actually have a role in this process. I'll put an asterisk by that and say hindsight is a pretty strong motivator here, right? If what stands between publishing and not publishing is you coming up with some post hoc theory about why that error covariance makes total sense or why that cross-loading makes total sense, I think people aren't necessarily able to be completely clinical in their evaluation of that. So I think that that's a problem. But But in addition to theory, and I want to throw this back to Patrick, is what you said, and that has to do with capitalizing on chance. Are you in favor of some kind of mechanism for trying to control how many of these you even entertain in the first place? Any kind of error control mechanism? Not from uh, post hoc comparison alpha correction kind of thing. I think for various reasons that aren't important to articulate here, that, you know, doing like a bone feroni correction or something like that isn't as applicable here. In my own work, what I do is it's kind of like, you know, back in the day when you do an EFA and you're looking at eigenvalues as to how many factors to extract. It's not just the size of the eigenvalue, but it's the size of what is the next one and what is the next one. And so I try to look at modification indices in context. First, Tessa, my recommendation is look at all your MIs. A lot of computer programs by default will only give you 10 and above. That's fine. But you don't know if you have five more that are 9.9, 9.8, 9.7, or the next five could all be, you know, one, two, and three. Well, that tells you something differently about the larger MIs. In my experience, if you have a couple of modification indices that are really big, and then there's like a precipitous drop, and all the rest are kind of drips and drabs, that suggests to me that you may have one or two omitted parameters that really need to be in the model to help characterize the sample data. But if you have a whole bunch that are 15 and 13 and 12 and 10 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5, that conveys more, your model just doesn't fit very well. And all the moles are organizing underground and they're all knocking on the door trying to get out because kind of nothing fits well. Greg, that's where my thinking is in terms of not looking at them so much in isolation, but looking at them in context to the other modification indices that you have as well. Yeah, I like that very much, sort of a scree plot idea there that you want to see that there's some sort of separation. Also, if we thought a little bit more about this, maybe you already know the answer, there's probably a way to characterize the dimensionality of these modifications so that, you know, it might pop up that, oh, hey, look, here are four modifications but they might all actually be solving the same problem and as opposed to be solving for right. And you get that sense when you make one modification and find the others disappear as opposed to they're still hanging around. So the dimensionality associated with modification indices is probably somewhat telling as well. Um, But I also use some sort of at least implied uh, scree criterion um, to look to see whether or not things are sort of bleeding above significance or bleeding above 10 or whatever threshold you're using, or if there are some that are just really, really sticking out like a sore thumb. Um, so I like that. So let me take a bit of a right turn and, and take a step back. You have a sample size of 500. So the modification indices are scaled by sample size just as the overall chi-square is. I got to tell you, 15 degree, or excuse me, 50 degrees of freedom and a chi-square of 100 with a sample size of 500, to me, 
That's not horrible fit. What are your other indices suggesting? What is RMSEA or CFI or SRMR? I mean, they're pretty good. The RMSEA is 0.05, CFI is 0.95, SRMR 0.03. All right, so those are okay. I like wouldn't brag about them at a bar. I mean, those are okay. Because this is another issue, right? If you held everything constant and had a sample size of 300, those modification indices and chi-square are all going to drop because they're all, you know, driven by sample size. You also have to balance your sample size with these. This is a very much like uh, what I think about is poke it with a stick. I have twin daughters and when they were younger, we loved going on walks in the woods. I live down in North Carolina and it's lots of fun to, to go out and about. And at the start of each walk, we get, each of us would pick up what we call a poking stick. And it's just a stick that you carry So that whatever wildlife you find, you can poke it and see what it does. We do this every time. And I have to admit, as various of us have been bitten and chased and things like that, but you wouldn't have known that without the poke and stick. And there's a poke and stick for statistical models, which is free a couple of the modification indices that are most consistent with theory and that you think are most reasonable. And look at the rest of your model. Would you write the same discussion section? Would you draw the same overall conclusions? And if you can poke it and it doesn't bite you, then who cares? Put the, you know, add the parameter, don't add the parameter. It fits a little better, you know, it doesn't matter. But if you add a cross-loading and you would draw a different conclusion about the dimensionality of these two factors across groups, then you need to give it much more careful thought. I like that a lot. The whole poking stick I'm still trying to wrestle with. And I just, I just imagine some, some old guy on the trail sitting down taking a, <laughs> taking a rest. And your daughters are up there going, what is it? What is it? <laughs> or if your mom's asleep on the couch and they go up and start, leave, leave grandma alone. <laughs> I know. Your mom's morphed into a pirate. <laughs> An Irish pirate, though. An Irish pirate, yeah latent in in the things that you're saying, or maybe not even so latent, is the idea of a sensitivity analysis here. And that is, what do you care about in this model? Do you care about uh, the degrees to which the factors are separable, unrelated, um, discriminate? Uh, what, what is the thing that you really care about? And looking at how that changes if you make the modification. Yeah, we know the fit's going to get better. Um, but it, are the things that you really care about sensitive to these modifications around uh, around the model? And if that's if they are sensitive to those changes, I think you probably have bigger issues. What's your final recommendation? What are you, you going to tell Tessa to do now? I would first peel off the default of 10 and look at all of them all computer programs do about the same thing. And so whatever you're using, it doesn't matter what, whatever you're using, strip it off and look at all of them and then see, are these the four biggest and then all the rest are drips and drabs or is it more of a steady decline? And then I would look at what is the parameter that's the largest one or near largest, which one is most consistent with theory. I would free that one parameter, do it one at a time, re-estimate the model, see what's left. Are the other three moles there wanting to still get out? Or what is very common in these kinds of things, all that's left are little drips and drabs because you were chasing around the same misspecification. And if that's the, the situation, if you can defend 
the modification, it's consistent with theory and you can sleep at night, then I would keep it. And most importantly, communicate that to the reader, right? That's one of the most important things is you have to talk about this process. You don't put a correlated residual in and imply that you knew it was there the whole time because you didn't. Uh, the only thing I would add is just to underscore that last point that you made, uh, which was really about transparency. Uh, I think you and I have reviewed, uh, well, what my daughter used to call a quillion, a quillion manuscripts by now. And in a lot of the manuscripts that I've read, I have suspected that people have made modifications that they didn't really uh, didn't really hypothesize a priori. And in some cases, I actually know that they made changes that they were uh, that they'd gone back and rewritten their front end. How might I know that? I hear you ask two ways. One is that many years ago, when more people used the listeral notation, certain parameters were given certain labels. And if you change the structure of the model, then that often meant a particular variable or parameters label would be changed. Uh, but you read a paper and they're using the notation system from the original model, but the picture now shows a different model. So you can figure out what modifications they had made in many cases uh, and were lying about. Uh, the other is just when you receive a manuscript from a different journal after you were already the reviewer for it, for the other journal, and you see that they've just made a bunch of <laughs> modifications <laughs> and rewrote the beginning and you go back to your the original version, you go, wait a minute. What's, is there anything different? No, they just rewrote it. Anyway, so it's like CSI. Dun, 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 dun. So the point I was making was just about, uh, about being really transparent. Um, you know, when we take our introductory statistics courses, the, the analysis that we do are fairly straightforward. And oftentimes, oftentimes everything comes down to a p-value. Right. And I sort of joke about that one with my students that they don't even have to do the thinking. They just look at the p value and they, and they have an answer. But as you get to increasingly complex models, your life doesn't really hinge on necessarily one p value. It's more about understanding a whole system. And when you have to understand how a whole system functions, that means that there's a lot more places where your judgment as a researcher enters in, where you have to make decisions. And these are decisions that reasonable people might disagree on. And so for that reason, it's critical that you document all of the decisions that you make throughout. And the analogy I like to use is going back to when you were first taking science in, you know, whether it's elementary school or middle school, and you learn to keep a lab notebook. And the idea of lab notebook is that you write down everything that you do, all the decisions that are made along the way. I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry, so I was very wedded to the idea of a lab notebook that you encounter things you didn't necessarily expect. You document it. You make particular decisions in your in your experiment along the way that you hadn't planned on. You document. And at the end of the day, that lab notebook is what is open for public consumption, uh, where people can say, yeah, those are reasonable choices, or I don't think those are reasonable choices. So I'm all for transparency when it comes to talking about error covariances that you might have added. Tell me what you were thinking. Cross loadings that you added. Tell me what you were thinking. I don't require you to be omniscient when you go into a study. I just require you to be honest uh, as a scientist. So that's uh, that's the wrap-up point that I will underscore that you had about uh, about transparency. And just as a final wrap-up to your wrap-up is this may be the one and only time I ever say this, but I completely agree and I have nothing to add. Wow. Noted. So, Tessa, thank you so much. I hope this has been of some use. Do you have any any last questions or comments? 
No, I think that wraps it up. That was very thorough. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for calling in. Thanks, Tessa. All right, Greg, I think we are about out of time, so we should wrap up here. I have nothing else. As always, we appreciate you listening in. Greg, any parting words? Yeah. Uh, Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and leave us a review. Uh, And be sure to tell your friends. Oh, also be sure to check us out on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod. You can also visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. Thank you, Greg. And thanks to everyone for listening. We look forward to talking to you again next time. You have been listening to Quantitude, the real argument against tenure. Today's episode is brought to you by Chromebox Alpha, who encourages you to confidently state even ridiculously low values, knowing that no reviewer will ever voice a concern. By Computer Simulation Methodology, a time-proven replacement for thinking. And by the reproducibility crisis. Just when you thought you were out of theories to test, we get to start all over again. This is most definitely not NPR.